Hi, I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. In this week's episode, I got to continue my conversation with Felicia Green. Part two of her interview was really focused on the research that she is embarking on to determine why women stay in engineering. There is a ton of information out there around why women leave engineering, but Felicia wants to focus on the resiliency employed by women who stick it out and stay engaged as professional engineers. So I hope you enjoy our conversation about how she's going to approach her research and what drove her to take on this challenge in the first place. So without further ado, Let's talk to Felicia. Welcome again, Felicia. It's so great to have you back. I really appreciate you taking the time to do a second part to your interview so we can do a deep dive into your research. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Just a kind of a high level, can you explain the studies that you're currently in and and what you're completing, your degree program, and what your thesis is about? Sure. I am currently in a PhD program for general psychology, but my emphasis is on human performance. Most human performance type psychologists work for like sports psychology. So you have like the NFL or the MLB or Olympic athlete sports psychologists that help the elite athletes get into like the mindset so they can have optimal performance. Um, The sports psychologists also kind of go into the extreme situations such as first responders or police officers and and firefighters and, and helping them you know, get in the mindset because they have to deal with high stress situations to perform and to, you know, do their job. So why am I, as an engineer, (laughs) studying this field? I want to look at women in engineering uh, have to go through a lot of difficult, challenging situations that, number one, are taught in school. And number two, not even talked about really or acknowledged in society. And I know that as a firsthand experience being a woman in engineering, the reason I came to study this is because I wanted to leave engineering. And it was a very challenging situation, a very hard situation that I was going through on how to figure out how to make it work being a woman in engineering and maintaining this career, but not really having the tools or resources for it. And instead of just leaving, I felt like I needed to do something about it. If you don't like the situation you're in, you can either just leave or you can try and fix it. And so the way I felt I was going to try and fix it was by learning more about it and understanding and exploring why I felt this way, why I wanted to leave. So if I can ask, just so I'm clear, 
you went through your undergraduate program, you went through a graduate program, you were working in some really challenging areas, really very cool companies, working in aerospace, doing different types of work in different parts of the country and gradually, um, but consistently progressing up through your career. Mm -hmm. Um, At parallel to that, you're married, you have your first child, you have your second child, you're trying to figure out how to balance being a wife and a, and a mother and mm-hmm. caring for your children without having to sacrifice your career and all of this time that you've invested in your education and, you know, growing professionally or vice versa, not having to sacrifice being with your children in order to maintain this career. And then you came to this crossroads where you're like feeling like you're going to give up and you're just going to leave engineering altogether. And then rather than that, you decided to study in a PhD program that would help you figure out if this was something unique to you or that other women were also experiencing this and it wasn't a challenge that was, you know, you didn't do any scenario planning for this when you were in school. Right. So you're not prepared for that decision making process or even have a toolbox to draw from in order to navigate that. Am I understanding that correctly? You summarized it perfectly. And all these things were happening to me and they didn't have a name. They didn't have anything that I could call it by to say, this is what is bothering me and this is why I can't proceed or this is my challenge and this is what I need help with. So oftentimes people are like, well, just ask for help. And I would say, well, I don't even know what I need help with. You know, well, just ask for help with, you know, having somebody watch your kids or ask for help at work with somebody to do and take on more tasks. And I was like, but I don't feel like I need that help. So I thought to go into psychology because it's the study of how people work. And then I looked into human performance because I was like, okay, that's how people perform. So I wanted to apply some type of methodology to understanding my problem. And then I figured, why not just do research on it? And it started out to me as a hobby, but I love reading and I love the scientific method as nerdy as that sounds. I just love to figure out why things work, why they don't work. And so that was my ultimate research topic is why do women in engineering leave? So I started the program and they said, okay, you start with your topic. And and what you need to do is research empirical studies from the past five years and find out what the current literature says. So I basically had to start by doing a literature review. How did you frame that? That's the cool part is the beginning of this doctoral journey. I expected, you know, I just want to get my PhD and do some work, write some papers. But what I didn't expect was it to change my worldview, (laughs) to, to kind of shake my foundation of how I viewed the world. So my professors were like, okay, where are you going to go look at this information? And I was like, well, I'm going to go Google it. And they're like, no, you don't go Google it. You go to peer reviewed articles. So you go to Google Scholar and you look up these research studies that have been rigorously peer reviewed. They have a method. They have a systematic approach to how you're viewing these phenomena, these different types of tacit things that you can't see, these unconscious bias, these burnouts, this vulnerability, all of these things that these constructs that you can't see. 
So I went on Google Scholar and I looked up all of these research studies that had been done on women in engineering and their attrition. And if you look at the research from the past 20 years, unfortunately, it has not changed. The researchers are still asking the same question as why do women leave? And so some things have come to a consensus among researchers and some, some things are still unknown. And that is basically how my dissertation topic has developed. And you have to start with the foundation. And I love the way Google Scholar has on their main page, you stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm not going to go and, you know, what they say, reinvent the wheel or, you know, start from scratch. Like what we're taught as doctoral learners is that we have to start from the end of other people's research studies. At the end of every research study, you should have future recommended research. So you're not going to go do the work that somebody else has already done. You're going to use that work and you're going to contribute to the literature in a meaningful manner. So that is kind of what I've done. I've read articles and read articles and read studies and read studies. And it basically takes you to a point where there's no information that is known on women in engineering in regard to their persistence. So what my topic is, why do women stay? Recurrent research that has been out there, it's been trying to understand why women leave. And there's extensive research on students in college and women in academia, but there's kind of a gap in women in the workforce. And then there's an even significant gap on women in leadership levels. And then there's also a gap in women in technical levels. And that is just the attrition. So if you flip it to the reverse and you start looking at the persistence and why and how those women stay of the ones that actually do stay, what is it about them? And so that's kind of where my research topic is right now. When I start collecting data, I'll be able to make better supporting statements and thoughts about those particular women. And what I like about this is that there's a methodical way to viewing these situations. I'm going to get about 20 to 40 senior technical women engineers, and I'm going to ask each one of them the exact same 20 questions. And then I'm going to transcribe all that information. And then I'm going to get themes like these women have never talked to each other. These women won't, won't know who who was in the study. It's it's completely anonymous and and the information will be confidential and I will be able to see themes and patterns. So at this point in your journey toward finding some answers about why women stay in engineering, you have identified the research question and you have developed an approach that you are going to interview women that are in leadership roles, that are in technical roles, Mm -hmm. that are professional engineers and compile that data review for themes and patterns, come up with these are the 10 elements that differentiate or these are the components. Have you identified your audience? Because just in listening to you explain what your process is going to be, there's a tremendous pool of women 
in the transportation industry that are engineers that would possibly be very interested in participating in something like that. And then having follow on sort of a presentation of your findings that could be very helpful to women as they're navigating their careers, but also to employers that need to address cultural or organizational elements that could help foster what keeps women in engineering. My target population is senior technical women engineers that have considered resigning from the industry, but ended up not, but, but choosing to not. And, and what I'm really looking at is the decision-making process that they went through. And I would love to have a description so that I can code those words and come up with the main themes of these experiences that these women have gone through. It gets into like kind of existentialism and do we all experience the same phenomenon or are we all allotted the same experience, but we just perceive it differently. So it's it's really cool to see how I'm going to be able to come up with these themes of persistence in engineering. And like you said, it's going to help the future generation of women in engineering. It's going to help companies retain that quality talent, that top talent, and it's going to increase the productivity and the efficiency and the optimization of product output for companies. I see a lot of engineering companies kind of tapping into the psychological element because companies are people and you can't have that people element as a company and be competitive if you don't want to know how your people work, right? And it's difficult because all people don't work the same. Exactly. In my role, part of what I'm involved with is fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion. And part of our challenge is in educating people that as a especially in construction, as a white male in construction, your path, your challenges, your decisions, your opportunities probably look very different than those of women or people of color, Mm -hmm. depending on your background, whether you're originally from the U.S. or not, Mm -hmm. that there are a lot of different challenges that really affect your path moving forward and whether or not you even think you can. And I think employers... When given a set of specific data that says, if you foster an environment that looks like this, if you provide opportunities or flexibility around X, then you will be more effectively engaging and retaining females in the industry and our workforce. And Mm -hmm. that diversity of thought is what's going to contribute to evolving our, whether they're systems or products or infrastructure, what have you, right? There's so much ambiguity around what you're supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. that it's difficult to know steps to take. You don't know, like you were just saying, you don't really know that you're making a choice, but in not making choices, you by default are. Right. Makes sense, right? (laughs) Not making a choice is making a choice. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of cool to have a foot in research and scholarship and then have another foot in the actual application of it, right? So I'm doing a bunch of research and studying all of these studies that are on women in the workforce. And I'm actually a woman in the workforce. I'm getting this information and then I go to work and I see it and I experience it. And one example is climate. 
you know, what is climate? Well, it's a product of the culture of whatever environment you're in, whatever situation you're in. And why is climate important? And the answer is because it affects productivity. And so if you have hostile climates and you're like, well, it's just what it is and it doesn't affect me. Well, yes, it does. It affects your productivity. So there's been a bunch of research that says when you have equal representation of men and women, the productivity actually goes up. But when you have the reverse, where you have more men than women, the productivity is significantly affected for those women. And I felt it before. I've actually had the opportunity where an entire product team was made entirely of women. So my systems engineer was a woman. My software engineer was a woman. So was the mechanical, which I was the mechanical lead for it. And then I had two interns that were also women. I remember we walked into the conference room and we sat down and we were like, this is really weird. It was kind of insulting. Somebody walked into the room and we're like, oh, is this a Society of Women Engineering meeting? We're like, no, this is our status meeting for, you know, XYZ project. We're like super proud that we were able to all experience that all women team. So it was a 30 minute meeting. We got all of our tasks addressed. It was figure this out. Yep. No, figure this out. Okay. Yeah. Where are we on this? Okay. 30 minutes. We were out. It was awesome. I was like, that was super efficient. And then other meetings that I had been in where I was the only woman, I remember having to defend what my status was. And they were like, well, are you sure? Why don't you go check with your mechanical chief and get that approved? And I'm like, why aren't you guys just believing what I say? And so sure enough, I had to go to my mechanical lead, tell him to go tell him that exactly what I said in the meeting. This is exhausting for me. I'm really tired. And there was an informal social experiment where a guy and his colleague who was a woman switched emails. And so he was in charge of her email and she was in charge of his. And she was like, you know, I've got so much work done this week. And he was like, this is the hardest week that I've ever had. Like I've had to explain myself and I've had to get, you know, backup. So it's like those things exist, those unconscious bias, those tacit things that you can't see and you can't feel that people don't even really have the name of exist in the workplace. And it's like, why? So having, you know, a foot in scholarship and a foot in the workplace and having those names and being able to transfer those constructs and those names from the research realm into the workplace realm has been so helpful. So I'm excited to get my research and then take those to the next generation to take them to my kids and be like, look at these things. These will help you you know, manage it and persist and continue to stay in engineering and continue to stay in STEM or whatever. And if companies want to know what those three themes are, I would love to share it with them. What's interesting is if you are what you describe as encountering in in the workplace for women, which I have found even to this point in my career, you know, I just celebrated turning 50 and I'm still getting, are you sure? You know, and can you double check that? And, you know, it's like, okay, if you've been in an industry cruising toward, you know, uh, three decades, at some point you want to think people just get that, you know what you're doing. Exactly. It is what it is. It's part of being a woman and working in male dominated fields. But if as professionals, we encounter that, 
at some level, girls encounter that going even going into STEM fields. And if they don't have those champions and the identification of those barriers and we don't make people aware of behaviors, there is not an opportunity to correct it. And so I think there's an opportunity to engage with high school and university levels, community colleges, where these types of things could be starting, really, that could prevent women from pursuing careers. Yeah, and it's nice to be aware, but it's kind of a little bit disheartening to be aware. I have two daughters. Uh, I have two daughters and one son. And my oldest daughter, who's seven, she's already experiencing stuff like that. And it's not anything that is anybody's fault. It's just influences from our society and influences from our culture that I'm sure I pass along to her unknowingly just because of the way I was brought up and raised from our, our culture. And I have to stop myself and slow it down because I want to change it for her. I want to change it for my daughters. And I want my son to know that those things that used to be aren't good and, and they're not helpful to anybody. So my daughter wrote an, a letter to the Easter Bunny and she said, you know, the, the little things I like Easter eggs and how many houses have you gone to and do you travel around the world? And she wrote this letter out and said, mom, will you review it for me and correct it for me so I can do the final draft? Because she's already like a engineers. So I was like, yeah, of course. And so she wrote it out and she gave me a red pen and she's like, here, that my teacher uses red pens when she corrects my stuff. So can you do the same? And I was like, okay, so I'm reading her thing and I read all her questions. And then one sentence stands out to me that I'm like, oh, okay. So the sentence that she had written was, I'm sorry, I'm asking so many questions. And I felt good to put a big red line through that because I'm, I'm going to change it for you. You know, I'm going to change. I, I think that I'm changing her life for her one, one instance at a time, right? <laughs> so she comes back and she's like, mom, why did you take that sentence out? And I said, because you should never be sorry for asking questions. That's the way you learn. And all of these situations fly through my head where I'm in class in college and I raise my hand and I'm like, I'm sorry, but, you know, trying to ask questions for a class that I've completely paid for and am accepted and allowed and worthy to be in, I'm apologizing for asking questions to learn. So questions are the way that you learn. Questions are the way that you're going to grow and, and make yourself better. And I said, never apologize for asking questions and trying to learn. And those are things that I've learned from you know, my life that I want to teach my kids and any other child never apologize for asking questions. With women, I feel like it's a, a lot of times there's a mindset of, I'm sorry to be bothering you. I know you're busy, but there's always an implied, you're more important than I am, but mm -hmm. I have to have this information. So when it's convenient for you and I'm not too much of a bother, can you please provide yeah. And there are so many subtle ways that we do that to ourselves, mm -hmm. whether it's internal to the organization or external to the organization. Mm -hmm. And even that thought process and especially saying it and writing it gives it even more power, but yes. it reinforces that we're second place or not equal to. Oh, and yeah. we do that to ourselves. Absolutely. And, and that's one thing that I learned in what I call my mid-career slump. 
I would call my mid-career slump equivalent to like a mid-career crisis. And that's when I wanted to quit engineering and do things that make me happy, right? And so I think it's equivalent to, you know, the guy going out to buy a fancy red hot Corvette and go fast, right? And so what I did, my red hot Corvette was applying for a PhD program with a nine month old. And um, I worked with the all women team and my conditions were great. The schedule was challenging, but I had the support. I had the support from my spouse. I had the support from my coworkers. I had the support from my family and from my kids. And it was like, why is this still hard? And I remember like kind of blaming others for not advancing and not being promoted. And there was some of that, but mostly I was upset that I was not being able to learn more. And then when I calmed things down and I was no longer in fight or flight mode and I was able to rationally think things out, I was, well, I can go learn that. I can go teach myself that. I can go get classes on you know, renewable energies. I don't need anybody's permission for that. And I was looking for things and people to blame, but it was like, no, go. You are completely capable of doing that. So yeah, I do agree. We totally do those things to ourselves. And I kind of explored that in in this um, scholarship exercise of reflection. And it's, again, a methodical way of thinking. It's not just you know, conscious stream of thought kind of thinking where you have no organization, but it is by John Dewey, who's like a psychologist on learning theories and how people learn. He even wrote a book of uh, how we think. It was like a methodical way of how to think things through. So I read it and I applied it to a situation, my mid-career crisis, and I was in fight or flight mode. And when you're in fight or flight mode, fight flight or freeze mode, you don't have the cognitive ability to think things through. So that's why you either fight or you run or you just freeze up and you procrastinate. It comes out in the form of procrastination. So moving forward through my journey of this PhD study, I worked with a lady who was like, okay, how do you calm yourself down? And she's like, well, you need to you know, work through these activities to calm yourself down. Like, do you, what are your coping strategies? And I'm like, I don't think I have any. I was like, maybe I go on Facebook and I scroll through or search through things. And she's like, no, your brain is still active. And that is a form of freeze mode. So you need to calm it down. So some of the things that I've learned to do is like journal. And that gets all that kind of dusts out your brains for like negative thoughts and and once you dust out your brain, like you, you never go back and reread your journal stuff. You just toss it because those are all the negative thoughts. Now your brain is like cleared and you're calmed down so that you can rationally think things through. This is all such cool stuff. This is how people work. Yes, engineering is awesome. You figure out how to build these amazing machines, but I kind of feel like the body, the human, the mind is an even more phenomenal system to like take apart and to learn. I still feel like a, an engineer in psychology, just my system and my machine now that I'm exploring is, you know, the human mind. That's exciting. And I think 
Like you said, being practitioner of something that you're studying, it allows you to kind of take that 40,000 foot view, but also experience day to day. So it's almost like you're testing what you're reading and you're observing real time, real life, what people have researched previously and whether or not you feel like it resonates with you as something that is accurate. And so with regard to the process of your completing your research, Mm -hmm. you've identified your question that you're trying to answer. Mm -hmm. You've identified a method for gathering the information Have you started interviewing people? If not, when will you start interviewing people? When do you hope to complete that? And then when do you think you will have some findings or start to have maybe a compilation of the results of your research? Those are all great questions. I'm currently working on my proposal. I need to get that approved by our IRB board at at the university that makes sure that I can conduct ethically and and correctly, humanely research on people. And then I will defend my research and then I will collect data. I'm looking for 20 to 40 participants to interview. And then I'm also looking for about the same amount to complete an online questionnaire, sort of the same questions. And then once I collect the sample number that I need, I will start analyzing data. And so I'm going to start coding and collecting themes. And so I hope to have all of that analyzed and coded by the August timeframe. And then I want to have everything written up and I want to graduate by the end of this year. Those are my goals. I feel like it's a little bit of kismet that we began talking to each other around this time frame because as I mentioned, you know, the the audience for this podcast as well as my network professionally includes a lot of female engineers. And I'm certain that there are some that would be happy to be a part of an interview or participate in an interview and even more that would be thrilled to complete a questionnaire with the understanding that obviously it's completely confidential, but to look to some preliminary findings perhaps in the fall and then maybe sharing what the findings were towards the end of the year. Yeah, that would be great. And my future goals, I know I stated at the beginning that this is this started as a hobby and what it's morphed into, because like I told you, my, my entire worldview has changed and my foundation of what I understand and how I know has just completely changed. I know that I want to continue doing this research. And, and like you said, being a practitioner and being a researcher at the same time. And that's what my goals are, is to continue this research. And I feel very, very passionate about doing both at the same time, because too much theoretical, you don't have the pragmatic part of it. And too much pragmatic and not enough theory doesn't really push you forward and make you grow any. So it would be great to have your support in in gaining more data and, and research. Absolutely. And what I can commit to is we'll figure out a way to engage the audience here and and my network, if that would be helpful. And 
Thank you so much. Yeah. And it will be exciting to hear about how the research progresses and and to see if if you come up with some findings that can actually help us as an industry. You know, I'm I'm always oriented toward transportation, but engineering in general. Um, Absolutely. And I think that is actually one of the gaps in the research is talking about the specific disciplines, like the specific discipline as mechanical engineers why are there so few mechanical engineers or what is it about civil engineers or what is it about the climate of transportation and that's where I'm like yeah this is just my first research study because I have so many more questions and I'm sure everybody has so many more questions but I think the key to it is doing it in a rigorous and systematic manner to get those answers well, I feel very confident that the audience of this podcast and, and this network within transportation, not just locally, but nationally, would be happy to participate. And I would be thrilled to get the information out and, w- and we'll figure out the best way to do that. And just in closing, what would you say to people that are considering participating in either the survey or being interviewed? I would say that I'm very excited to hear their words because I want to say thank you for for sharing your experience with me. And I also not only I'm going to use that information for my research, but in my own life, how to keep on persisting. So I would be grateful for anybody who would share their experience with how to have a fruitful career in engineering. And we'll compile that and and hopefully be able to help a lot of other women as well. Absolutely. The next gen. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Felicia, for this follow-up conversation. I'm excited to continue our dialogue and get the information out about your survey and interviews and to see how the research progresses and share that back out with our audience. Awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so exciting to talk to Felicia Green about her research project. I hope that the result of her studies will produce some information for us as an industry that we can help use to support women in engineering. If you'd like to be involved with her research project, please look for information coming soon. And I hope you'll consider contributing if you're a woman who has considered leaving the industry and has decided to stay. Next up, I get to talk to the geoholics. Anybody who follows the survey industry has probably listened to their podcast. And Kent Grow and Ryan Kelly were two people that were very encouraging and supportive of me when I was starting moving Arizona. So I hope you will join me next time. And until then, let's get moving.